Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maytree's popular program. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac, president of Maytree. We are a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights-based approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite experts from the nonprofit or corporate sector to share five practical ideas on a key management issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In this session, originally recorded on October 25th, 2021, we asked Owen Charters to share five good ideas for greater governance and how to make boards better. Well, many of you are dialing in from across Canada and from the RSVP list, I see that we have people from Vancouver to Halifax. I'm speaking to you from Toronto. I'd like to begin today's session by acknowledging the land where we live and work and recognizing our responsibilities and relationships where we are. As we're meeting and connecting virtually today, I encourage you to acknowledge the place you occupy. I am and Maitri is on the historical territory of the Huron-Wendat, Hattun, Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the New Credit Indigenous Peoples. This territory is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the lands and resources around the Great Lakes. So, governance. You may have heard it said that strategy starts with the board, but is that really true and should it be? Whether you're an executive director or CEO, including an aspiring one, managing a board is a skill that's rarely taught, and yet it's vital to any senior nonprofit leader. In today's session, Owen Charters will talk about how a board can be better, what should it focus on, and what should it ignore. He will share five good ideas, and I think he's also got a few bad ones to avoid to keep your board on track, ensuring they are a partner in guiding your organization on the toughest decisions and uncover whether they really should be on the seat of an organizational strategy. Owen is the CEO of BGC Canada, formerly known as Boys and Girls Clubs of Canada. He serves on the advisory board of Common Good, a retirement plan for nonprofit sector employees. He's on the advisory committee for the School of Advanced Studies in the Arts and Humanities at Western University, and he's on the board of the National Alliance for Children and Youth. Owen, as you can see, is committed to pushing for a stronger nonprofit sector voice in Canadian policy, as well as better working conditions for sector employees. It is now my pleasure to welcome Owen. Owen, over to you. Great. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And thank you to everyone for taking some time today to hear about boards. I promise not to make it boring. Sorry about the pun. I did want to say uh, a big hello to everyone, because as you heard from Elizabeth, we have people from coast to coast to coast who are part of this. I realize that if you're on the West Coast, you're sheltering from torrential rains and wind. There's a little bit of that in Toronto, but definitely nothing like what we're seeing there. And of course, it's we're, we're going to spend the next 25 minutes and then some time after that and questions dealing with what can be a pretty stormy issue at times. I also want to say hello to former colleagues and current colleagues on here. Lots of it's great to virtually have you with us today. I think this is a very timely conversation. As an example, we have the issue of Rogers. And I'm sure you've been following some of the news about the Rogers board, or in this case, many boards. There's a oversight board and a public level board and boy, is it a mess. So the goal today is to fix Rogers by the end of the session. Actually, I don't think so. I don't think we're going to be able to do that, but it is, I think when we talk about governance, it is a very 
relevant topic in so many ways, and there's so much happening in the area of governance at all times, and it can go in so many different directions, as we saw with Rogers. So lots of interesting things to talk about. I want to preview this by also saying there is no way today that I'm going to be able to solve all your bad board problems. There's a multitude of reasons boards do bad things and behave uh, in a naughty way. I'm sure there's going to be some questions about it, but the intent today is not to solve all those problems or to create the best board for you. It's to give you five good tips, five good, I almost call them tricks since we're close to Halloween and trick or treats. So these are tricks or treats that are going to help your board become a better board, I hope. And some of them might be not your cup of tea. In fact, what I always worry about a little bit doing these sessions is that maybe one of my board members is on here and they may not like what I have to say about it. Another quick thing to give you context is I want to focus, this is a presentation focused on you as either the executive director or CEO. I'm going to use the word term CEO pretty much exclusively because it's just easier to pick one term. You could also be called a general manager. They might have given you a different name, whatever the title is, or the title that you aspire to have that is the person responsible to the board ultimately. So we'll see where this goes. But as I said, there's, it's not all going to be applicable to you. It may be interesting if you are on a board to think about this from that perspective. And the last piece I will of advice on all of this is that I'm trying to create a bit of, I guess, geekiness for you in terms of the board. What I want to say is you don't grow up as a CEO um, becoming involved in board issues or something you learn often on the job, but it requires a lot of interest and focus in order to really understand it. It means we need to create some geeks. And the best story I ever heard about being a board governance geek is a friend of mine, Alona Doherty, who talked in a speech she once gave about the fact that as kids, her parents ran several nonprofits and charities. And so they had to be dragged along to all kinds of meetings. And as a result, she and her brother, when they were young, used to, instead of playing makeup, like dress up and, and tea, they would play AGM. And I can't imagine any other kids playing annual general meeting. But maybe we can help people getting interested, at least to a certain level, that you really are going to have to pay attention to managing the board. It doesn't manage itself by itself. So that's the beginning of this. I'm going to talk about my first trick or tip. Idea number one here is that you need to be working on the board in shaping their work in three key areas, policy or sometimes fiduciary, strategy, and generative governance. And I'm going to talk about all of these. And I'm actually going to emphasize this, perhaps a little bit controversial, but boards really don't do strategy. They don't do it very well. It's a real challenge in that regard. And I will say to you that, first of all, I am not a big fan of any particular type of board. Boards that say, oh, we're a policy board or we're a Carver model board, because I actually think boards need to be what they need to be. They can't necessarily guide by policy alone in every situation. They can't be constrained to one model or the other because the situation changes. The situation changed for many during COVID when all of a sudden it was a crisis of existence. And I think a board has to evolve and adapt not only what it focuses on, but what kind of model it is. So we're going to talk about policy, strategy, and generative boards and how each of those are the right thing to do at different times. And I'm going to tell you, first of all, the, the most um, banal or boring part of this is often the policy side or, or the fiduciary side. It's the role of a board must do. It's the responsibility and accountability. It's enshrined in law of what a board has to pay attention to, the finances, making sure the board, the organization is solvent and that it's getting its reports that are required in on time. By the way, this also means thinking about what is the role of the board versus staff. 
And I hear this all the time. What's, what does a board do? What's a staff? What's the staff do? What is management? How do we know the board's out of line on this? Well, there isn't a hard and fast line. And I'm really sorry to tell you that because so often the difference between what management should do and what staff should do is a bit like those invisible lines that only you can see as a spectator of sports, whether it's football and you're looking for that first down line, or you're thinking about baseball or about to start the world series and that little rectangle that you see over home plate, those are only invisible to you as an observer. They're not invisible to the umpires, the referees, and the players. And that line often shifts a little bit, depending again on the issue, but there is a line. And I often think that if you're having trouble and it's becoming a contentious issue in your organization, you often need an external observer that can probably be a consultant uh, who can spend some time understanding how things really need to be shaped out so that that line is preserved. But it is a moving line because sometimes a board does need to move in areas of management during a crisis or during times of leadership transitions. And I think we have to be careful about setting those as really hard and fast lines, ultimately. Um, as I said, fiduciary or policy is the board's role in due diligence, oversight, reporting, and accountability. Um, strategy, they do have a role in strategy, and I'm going to talk a bit more about it in terms of long-term and responsive strategic um, uh, development and generative. And that's why it's the fun part. And I think what most board members are looking and where we often fall short delivering for board members. As an example, a fiduciary question asks, what's wrong or what could go wrong? It's not necessarily what's wrong today. Strategic is, what's our plan? And generative is, what's the key question? We're going to talk a bit about what that means. For me, ultimately, I think you need to be careful, again, that boards don't necessarily need to do management, but if they're starting to ask a lot about operational issues, you need to start questioning the relationship that you have with the board and are you earning the trust in the right way? Is the board trusting you? Or are you, if you look in the mirror, are you earning their trust in a way where they're not getting too deep in operational issues? Because they need to stick to these areas, fiduciary, strategic, and generative. And ultimately, I'm also going to tell you that part of your role is that strategic element. And here's what I'm going to say, always controversial, boards suck at strategy. They're terrible. And they're terrible because of this. Most of you, if you're in a CEO role, thought about your organization at some point while having a shower. You thought about it while having dinner with your family. You thought about it while driving to work. If you're still driving to work, anyone, most people are just going to their basement uh, office or whatever it is to zoom into work. You thought about it enough to complain to your spouse or partner about it. Your board members, most of them did not think about your work in the same way through those same times. They thought about their own challenges and their own work. You might be lucky if they even read the board package before they stepped into the boardroom or onto that Zoom board meeting. They don't think about it in the same way. They think about it in the meetings that they attend, which some meetings, if they're monthly, then they're attending those maybe monthly. They're having a bit of uh, thinking about it. And if you're on a board that meets five or four or even three times a year, that's not significant amounts. And so the context they need to set strategy is missing. So your role in this, because you live this, you live this at least 40 hours a week, if not 50, 60 or more, is you understand the context. And it's your job as a CEO or a senior management team to build the strategy. The board becomes the sounding board in this response, um, a very different role they can consider. They can advise, they can reject strategy, they can, but ultimately your job is to convince them of the strategy that you've got, because only you've got the time and capacity to really think about this in a way that's going to really shape it. By the way, a little tr trick um, up my sleeve that I think is always useful is if you're having trouble getting boards to be persuaded or to understand the perspective you're bringing to the table, 
because often as a CEO, there's one of you trying to convince maybe 12 others, um, is you may need an external voice to come in. And this sounds annoying because your board should trust you, but it's the idea of familiarity. And it's the same problem you had when you had kids, your kids come home and they want to do something and parents say, oh, no, 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 it doesn't sound like a good idea. Then your friends come over and say the exact same thing. And all of a sudden the parents go, hmm, maybe we should try that. So frustrating. So you need experts who bring that validation, that expertise from outside that what you're thinking about isn't just you in your head alone, but brings that thought from someone else. Last point on this generative work. Think about, so generative for me is thinking about big ideas. Get the board involved in the big questions of the day. Bring in a speaker, send them an article, send them books, send them something or make them listen to a podcast on a really interesting topic that gets to the core of your mission and get them thinking about it. Set aside time in a meeting or set aside a special meeting where they can contribute. The one thing board members really, really want to do is get their hands dirty. And if you don't give them time to get their hands dirty in the big issues that you're wrestling with, the most difficult issues of the day, the biggest strategic ones, they're going to get their hands dirty in your operational issues. So give them the things that sit on your desk that are the most intriguing and the most difficult and start the conversation so that they can take the journey with you on those big things, not the small mundane things, but on those big things. Idea number two is we want boards to manage the CEO. That's supposed to be their only employee at any time. And that's the person they manage. They often do a terrible job of it. And the reason for that is actually often your own fault as a CEO. I hear it too often from CEOs who say, how come my board is not managing these issues? They need to, they should be giving me an evaluation and they're just not. Why aren't they? Well, they're not because it's hard. Nobody likes to do evaluations. Nobody likes to receive them, but also nobody likes to write them and do them. And it's worse when you have a committee of people who have joint responsibility for making an evaluation. It's almost impossible. So help them do it. One of the tricks I've done is we've created a human resources and compensation committee whose primary role is to evaluate the CEO. Not just that, but attract the right CEO, retain that CEO and do evaluation, and also think about succession. So they have a full uh, agenda just on that, that basis. And if needed, they've got someone like an expert HR consultant who can actually talk them through HR issues uh, as opposed to the whole board. And then they have their work cut out for them. This really works. We know too often that boards, they, they just don't do this well. And by the way, they also don't fire soon enough when it comes to poorly performing CEOs. This sounds like funny advice to give to CEOs, but it's the way boards behave that these types of HR decisions are tough enough when you're a manager. They're exceptionally difficult when you're a committee of eight or 12 people. It's also admitting to a mistake when you have to fire. And you're always often not aware at the board level of the consequences of dragging your feet, that you're losing good staff um, of what's happening inside the organization by not making that decision. So I'm not telling you to get fired faster, but I'm giving you a perspective, I think, on the board seat and the challenges. So help them with that role because it's ultimately about the organization and the mission. Can they improve leadership around this in a better way? So the third item that I want to share with you is really about who should be on your board. So boards should be diverse, but they also must be reflective of the community. Here's the person you probably don't want on your board. First of all, not just because he's white and male, but he's Mr. Finger Guns Connections. He's there for the networks and because he's going to make great connections. Is he going to do the necessary work on the board? Doubtful, unless you happen to be the National Finger Gun Association, in which case he's probably the right person for your board. But I think 
that's probably unlikely. So that's not who you need on your board. Here's what you do need to be thinking about. You need to be thinking about, are the people on your board able to advise on the things you need? Do they actually understand the issues you're facing? Do they understand that some nights you're up trying to make payroll? They understand that sometimes you're creating massive strategy and you don't have the revenue for it. So are they people who run an organization or a department or a business in a way where they've faced those same questions themselves and had to wrestle with them? And that means there's certain types of people who are wonderful people, but are unlikely to be great board members. And this is going to probably piss off a few people, but people who are great professionals, great thinkers, teachers, nurses, lawyers, doctors, some bureaucrats and civil servants. If they haven't spent time thinking about how an organization survives and fails, if they haven't had to think about where the money comes from and how to get more of it, they're going to struggle in a board role and advising you on some of these things because they haven't always managed a budget. They haven't had to fire staff. They haven't had to worry at 3 a.m. about how they're going to pay for that staff. They're not always the best board members. And some of you are going to say, but that's terrible. That's all I've got available. Well, that doesn't say that they're necessarily bad. But I think you really need to think about those people, interview them, discuss with them the issues that they're going to be facing and see if they've got the capacity to really wrestle with these issues. Some of the worst people to have on your board, the people who are going to give you a profile, sports figures, celebrities, they're in it for potentially the ego more than anything. And they're not going to be giving you the time to really understand this. So you want to focus on people who have some management experience and can guide you as an example. Don't love the idea of lawyers for the sake of having lawyers on the board, but if you have lawyers who are partners and understand the issues or they're corporate lawyers and deal with the kind of issues you face on a day-to-day -day basis, then they could be fantastic partners on the board. And you definitely need some expertise in certain areas, but you have to be careful about who you're bringing on and that they bring to the table the issues, the expertise that you need. The other thing though, is boards right now are under a lot of pressure. And I'll give you the example of the story that happened in my organization. I got a call from a very senior public leader who has been talking a lot about diversity on boards. And they said, you've got a great board owned because I went online, I looked, it's very diverse. And I actually thought, no, you have no idea how diverse my board is because you're looking at right now what is the physical appearance of a bunch of square photos, profile photos, which doesn't tell you anything about diversity. What we need to understand is that those photos don't show which person might have a disability. They don't show which person is LGBTQ to us. Plus they don't show any of that diversity. They just show color. That's not a good measure. I ultimately believe in a reflective board, not a representative board. Now, some of you can't get away from having a representative board. Your bylaws require it. People are elected, especially unions, but it is wherever possible. If you can move that to be reflective of the community as opposed to representative, I think you'll have something a lot stronger. The example is that in one of my clubs, in my organization, in Northern Newfoundland, um, up the peninsula, as we would say, you're not going to find a lot of diversity, but you definitely need people who reflect the community. You also need, to, if you are a homeless organization, you need to find people who've experienced homelessness. If you're working on food insecurity, then you need to find people who've experienced food insecurity, absolutely to be on those boards. That's probably more important than anything else. If you're in a community that is predominantly racialized, then you probably need a board that looks quite different than the mix that I think some people idealize for a national board of various different um, colors on the board. You need to be thinking about, is the board reflective of the communities it is? And what I mean by reflective is that they don't come to the table with an agenda built because they have to get a voice on behalf of certain constituents, but that they can reflect the broader issue facing all the constituents in your organization. It is very unfair to 
pinpoint to some people things like we need a youth member. Having a youth member is not reflective. It puts a huge amount of load on one person and especially in a role where it might be quite intimidating to speak up on a board where everyone else is middle-aged. Now, that may mean that you, if you have a strong youth agenda as an organization, you need a few members of your board who are reflective of a youth agenda. You may need a few who reflect certain races, certain cultural backgrounds, certain geographies to make sure it is not just a, um, one or two people trying to be reflective of the whole. And I think that reflective lens is a really important lens to think about how your board can work. And I, I don't need to tell all of you, please don't create token roles. Um, it often creates a lot of uh, demotivation and disgruntlement, and you'll lose board members as a result of that. We really don't want token board members. We want truly reflective members who can be thoughtful and contribute overall to the organization. The next thing, point number four, boards need to be engaged. Sounds silly. Of course, you know that. They need to be engaged through committees. Oh, committees. We've got lots of those. We've got too many committees. They need an education program. They need a connection to mission. And they need a connection potentially as alumni, if you can make that work. This is not as easy um, as we all think sometimes because it takes an enormous amount of work. This is the part that I think CEOs who start at the first time in a CEO role don't realize is how much of your time is going to be spent supporting the board. You need to connect with individual board members and you definitely need to connect with the board member that you can't stand or the one who can't stand you. By the way, if you have a really bad board member not working with you, and because this question is definitely going to come up in the chat later, if you have a really bad board member and you're like, what do I do? You need to get them off the board. How you do that? Many different ways. You're going to have to be creative, thoughtful. You're going to have to work with other board members. You're going to have to build alliances. Those are tricky, but they have to really understand how you make sure that, those, um, that you have a board that ultimately is functioning well. But you need to work one-on-one -on -one with each of your board members to build a relationship. You have a working relationship with every single board member, not just the chair. I actually have two boards. I have a foundation board and an agency board, and I'm making sure that I'm connecting with at least two board members a week, at least with a quick phone chat just to check in. It does take a lot of time. It's worth it in the end because you can build on the, the relationship capital in those cases when you have a tricky issue, when you need to work through something, when you do confront something where there may be a, cup, a board member or two that are um, struggling um, or struggling against you, as an example. It's pretty important that you start building those relationships with each of them. And if you've been a fundraiser, as an example, you know the importance of building relationships with each donor and each funder. Your board members are no different. Make sure you're building those relationships with each of them. Also, make sure you find other ways to engage the board so that they feel connected to you. They don't always have anymore a direct connection to your mission. Can you bring in those who are affected by the mission to speak to the board from time to time, to give them a better view of that direct work of the organization in a way that they may lose sight of during a board meeting. So reconnect them to mission, get them out, um, send them out to engage with parts of the mission. As an example, we build a program to make sure that our board members are going to see our member clubs and engaging with them and asking questions and getting engaged and doing it on their own time, not being handheld alongside me as CEO, but being able to go out and learn and bringing those learnings back to the board table. We also develop education programs, not just education programs about the organization, but education programs on how to be a better board member. So many board members come to the table never having been trained properly on how to work as a board member. So bring in educators where you can, bring in consultants, send them to sessions like this where they can learn how to be a better board member. 
um, and the role that they have to, to provide. So make them essentially a better board member than when they started. Many people who have uh, gone camping have seen things that say, leave this campsite better than when you found it. And I think for board members, it's the same. Leave those board members better when they leave than when they found you. And if you can do that and think about their development, I think you're going to have better board members overall. The last thing is a little trickier and sometimes still quite useful is if you can keep them. Too often at the end of the, their term, we say goodbye and those board members go off into the blue uh, and we lose all that expertise, the knowledge and history and wisdom that they've built up. I've seen creative ways to continue to engage those board members um, because we want them. They're very connected to mission. They make great donors. They might have a planned gift for you. But in one case, it meant bringing back board members once a year to an annual lunch. It was an open invitation. You could attend as a former board member and you would hear from the current CEO and chair about issues the organization was facing. Obviously, there's less of that during COVID, but maybe it's easier now to do that by Zoom or to engage them in other ways, whatever it might, creating an advisory panel. Be careful of that because you don't want a second level of governance. You want one level of governance, not two or three, but you definitely want to make sure that you don't necessarily lose those board members. Give them an opening to reconnect because they're your best ambassadors. They've spent three years, six years, eight years or more really getting to know your organization. I know, by the way, one of the questions we're going to get is, you know, what if you don't have term limits and you've got someone who's been on the board 15, 20, 25 years? Those are some of the trickiest things to do. But an alumni program gives them a place to go, by the way. It's not a be-all and end-all kind of solution, but it does help give them a place to go, given how much they've given to the organization over that time. So think about ways to engage those that have been with the board for some time, but then are moving on. The last one that I'll share with you is look to other sectors. Look to other sectors to learn about other good governance practices that we might be able to emulate in this sector, especially we're thinking around the terms about account accountability. Seems a bit strange. And it seems a bit strange because it goes against something that I believe fundamentally. I actually believe that in the nonprofit world, we live with more complexity of stakeholders and challenges than many other sectors. And I actually think the for-profit sector has a great deal to learn from working in a complex sector where you aren't driven predominantly by the bottom line and that service, therefore, in a charity board is in some ways more relevant to operating anywhere else than necessarily coming from the for-profit side. However, when you look at a publicly traded company and you look at the work they do and what they report and the levels of accountability, I actually think we have a lot to learn. One of the examples for that is that if you look at annual reports of most charities, they've become beautiful, happy, tell-all types of documents that don't really get into the challenges the organization is facing. There's a lovely letter from the CEO and a lovely letter from the chair. The finances are in there. And, and then there's a list of donors. And then there's some beautiful pages and pictures of the great work done throughout the year. If you go and look at what publicly traded companies must provide, You'll see a management discussion analysis. You'll see a future earnings report. You will see all kinds of issues that talk about the issues that an organization's actually facing, good and bad. You'll read about the different committees of the board, who's on it, what they've done, and how important it was for them to learn more about their work. You'll also read about the board education program that many publicly traded companies need to have. They need to continue educating their board members to be better. So there's some really interesting things that the for-profit sector does but maybe because they're required to, that we've become a little bit lazy about in terms of accountability. So are we truly reporting to the stakeholders that matter the most on what we do through, and that starts with the board, 
or are we making it a very sort of happy, sunny, rosy picture at the end of every year in terms of what needs of great things we've accomplished without getting into a little more depth of the issues facing the organization? Do you report on what the various committees have done at the board level and what their rules are? So think about it. And I've talked earlier about having, for instance, a human resources and compensation committee. I think that's always something of interest. I do think that you have to be careful how many committees you create, because very often it's just you as CEO or supporting many of these committees. But if you have the capacity to take the critical functions of the board, and I really think there are three main ones. Some boards have many, but you've got a finance audit risk management. That's one. You've probably got a governance committee that thinks about the work of the board. And then you've got one that does this important thing, which the board has responsibility for, which is manage the CEO and therefore an HR uh, slash compensation committee is not a bad idea. So think about those things. And the last thing I would submit, you can't do this in Canada, but the United Kingdom has started doing this. They've started thinking that in certain size nonprofits and charities, maybe it's time to pay for trustees for their time because the issues are complex and the time needed to really focus on it and do the job well has been about getting people to understand their work as a trustee. The last thing we need is board members who are sleeping. So we do need to understand that board members have, if they're doing the job properly, they should be spending a lot of time doing the materials, reading, engaging, and maybe in some of the largest organization, that means thinking about potentially compensating them for some of that time. Now we're not thinking the salaries that those in large publicly traded companies might make. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how the UK experiment happens. And last but not least, don't do some of the bad things that for-profits do. You don't want a CEO and chair all in one. There's a lot of power as a result with little accountability. So you don't want to be Mark Zuckerberg, essentially. And we've seen too often people ask, is it good practice or bad practice to have the CEO to have a seat on the board at all? And my advice is I still think you need greater separation of management and governance. And I still don't think that's a good idea. Although there's several organizations that still do that. So those are the top level pieces. As I said, it doesn't cover the gamut for everything that a board could or could not do. It's some tips and tricks that I think really should get you thinking about how you could change your board and really get them thinking about it. Uh, a lot of this was based on an article I wrote for a text produced by the Matart Foundation, along with Carleton University. Chapter eight goes in more detail in board governance. There's so much more we could discuss. It was a real struggle today to narrow this down to five good ideas and include some bad ideas that you shouldn't do. This is a conversation that can go on and on and on. And one of the things I wrote in the chapter is that what amazes me about governance is the number of resources, the number of consultants who have provided materials often for free on governance. Yet we all struggle with this. And it seems we're endlessly trying to find the right balance to make this work. And I don't think it's because of the lack of resources. I actually think it's because there's very little training on board governance. There's a lot of training to be a, a board um, director if you want to spend the dollars that it takes to take the corporate directorship course. But that's pretty inaccessible to most people and especially to a lot of nonprofit boards and board members. And as CEOs, we don't spend the time learning this. When I did a, a MBA, you learn a lot about strategy and marketing, but you learn very little about governance. And yet it consumes so much. Again, thinking about Rogers today and the debate that's playing out in public view, governance is hard. Governance has to be done well. It causes more problems for more people. But because it's lonely at the top, often we'd have no one else to talk to if you're in a CEO seat. So I hope this has been helpful today in terms of thinking about it. And I really think that people need to be thinking more about this more proactively 
It will make your life better overall because the board can be a huge source of pain, but it also can be a huge source of pleasure when you have a high functioning board that's working well in partnership with the CEO and senior management. So I believe I'm turning it back over to Elizabeth where there may be some questions um, in the chat that we'll see if we can get to. But I really appreciate the time everyone's taken today to listen to this and I hope it's been helpful. It has, and I can already vouch for that because I think one of the early comments in the chat room said, this is therapeutic. And I, I think I have to concur because I think as people that work in nonprofit organizations at a senior level, these are things that we think about, they're challenged by it, and you said it's really hard. And I think it comes down to a lot of what you described, it's relationships between people. And a lot of your advice, I think, comes down to how do you engage people, talk to people, get them thinking all of that sort of stuff and build alliances and that kind of thing. So we have questions. First of all, Owen, you talked about it's the job of the CEO or the ED or whoever is in charge to shape the CEO evaluation and management. How do they do that? How do you shape that with the board? Easier said than done, maybe. Um, I think it's a fair point. And I'm, I'm, I should have gone in a little more depth. I actually think one, providing a framework. So do the research. There's a million of them. Um, if you look online, you'll find all kinds of evaluation formats for CEOs. And they're not always the same as what you do for an employee evaluation because they look at organizational responsibility and individual capacity. Also knowing that it's very hard for boards to thoroughly evaluate some of the individual responsibility pieces. So sometimes you'll see boards who say, all right, well, you know, we can't evaluate how you work with the team because we don't see it day to day. But every three years, we're going to do a, a 360 degree evaluation. Not every year, because that's perhaps onerous. Um, and that would be my recommendation, by the way. I'm sure some boards do do that every year. But do it from time to time to really get a sense of how you're working within the organization. But there's models of CEO evaluation. And one of the resources I point to is BoardSource. It has some paid resources and some free. And I would recommend looking in there because it talks about, as an example, here's a model for CEO evaluation that a board can use. So here are the areas that they need to pay attention to. And here's how to evaluate that. How much weighting should we put to revenue? How much weighting should we put to engagement of external stakeholders? How much do we measure against a strategic plan? And how much do we evaluate the, the CEO's own role in shaping the board's agenda and work? So help them do that. Don't let them flounder around and try and find it. Give them a framework and give them a process. Build a timeline that says, you know, I'm going to, starting in, say, November, this is when you're going to have a conversation about this part. And then take them through in January and then with the expectation that by February, they'll be able to sit down, schedule a time in your calendar already with the chair of the board or the chair of the HR committee to say, this is when the evaluation will happen. So I think taking the bull by the horns and saying, this is the format, here are the pieces. You can decide if you want to use this or not, but I'm going to set up all the pieces, both the process and, and the framework for the content. Obviously, you can't do the content is enormously helpful. And by the way, a self-evaluation as part of the process is never a harmful thing painful to have to write it. You sort of feel like, why am I writing about myself? And most people are a little bit uh, humble about it, but I actually think writing some of your own evaluation to give to the board for them to respond to is very helpful as well. So those are some of the tips that I think allow you to take charge of that process and get the ball rolling. It's a great set of ideas. Thank you. Someone else asks about the use of matrices for recruitment. You talked about reaching out to get a reflective board. I think you did a really great job of talking about some of those competencies of diversity that you want to see present. These matrices that are out there that illustrate breadth and depth of what diversity needs the agency has and how these are being filled by board members. What are your thoughts on those? Are those useful tools or do they get us back into the boxes of representation? 
I think you have to have a matrix these days because it's so complex. I actually use two. So here's the example. We have one that talks about geographic representation, linguistic representation, different stakeholder reflections of different stakeholder groups. So we look at that as a broad piece of who they reflect or represent, obviously in a reflective way. So there is that. And then there's a section matrix that says what skills are brought to the table. So if you then look at, are there people who understand brand and marketing and are there people who understand revenue and fundraising and, and those issues? Are there people who can bring a perspective on management, um, strategy and management as a few other, if you think about the skills you need at the table, that other matrix also has to be filled out. If you just do the first one, that's where I think boards fall down because then what they get are they get people who are potentially becoming truly just representative and they're going to represent a certain issue. But if they can bring to the table that broader other spectrum of the matrix that says, are we filling the gaps in the skills we need at the table? Then you've got a board that's better able to serve you when it comes to a strategic question or a crisis or something else, because those skills are also at the table. So I hate to make it more complicated, but in some ways by using a variety of matrices, I think you actually get a better representation of what you need a stronger board overall. So yes, use them because you will need to make sure you're representing your community and then having a reflective board, make sure they also reflect the needs you have as a board, not just, so one is a very public facing piece and the other is an internal facing, facing piece. But we actually share both in, in a discussion paper that we provide. We do an annual report, like I talked about, sort of the glossy piece. And then we do what we call the management discussion and a governance discussion to our stakeholders, which are our members. That actually says this, these are the matrices of the, the board as it exists and how it's going to look once we've elected the new slate of boards in terms of skills at the table and representation. So we openly talk about the fact that both of these need to be at the table. Nice public accountability. But here's an interesting question, and I, I think it's interesting because I've been a board chair a couple of times. And I always feel that it's by default that I was the only person willing to say yes. So if you do it with greater intention, what characteristics or skills should the chair of your board have? And what is a good process to identify those competencies? This is really good because the last thing you need is a board who thinks that the chair is the boss. The role is actually very challenging, first of all, because their role is corralling and convening the voices around the board table into a conversation that can work with the CEO. And so it's much more of a collaborative role, a convening role and, and a chair in the sense of a person who's, you know, making the meeting work, whose interest is served in making the meeting work. Again, I hate to point to board source again, but they actually have a very good piece on what makes a good chair. And we download it at our organization and hand it to the incoming chair as an example. But it also becomes part of the board evaluation process. Boards that have strong evaluation processes identify through that every year others amongst themselves who could be good potential chairs, not I want to be chair, but the idea that, Hey, who else should be chair? Who do I think would best represent us as an organization? And those votes through the governance committee start to really add up. And you start to see that there's a consensus that so-and-so on the board who may not see themselves as chair, but the rest of the board sees the potential for that person to collaborate and, and, and engage in the way that they think makes sense. And I think there's something very valuable giving that process. It's democratic. It also means that the unusual suspect might appear out of the mist as your new potential board chair candidate, because it's often the people who, you know, they're too modest to put up their hand, but they actually have the skills and talents to make it work. So it makes it easier than casting around and trying to find that one willing volunteer or maybe the sucker who doesn't know what's involved in being chair, which is the worst kind of role, because then they get stuck in a role where they're not going to put the time in um, and they don't have the skill sets for it. So I think those things of 
setting up the expectations around and a job description around what the chair is. That's what the board source piece is useful for. And then having a process to really figure out who it is, who others are seeing as a potential chair. Terrific. Now, here's an interesting question around different capacities on a board. Thank you for the excellent presentation. Working in housing, we frequently hear from nonprofit boards who are keen to bring tenants onto their boards, i.e. to build a more representative board, but struggle with the disconnect between the capacity of community-based directors and that of the directors with more quote-unquote professional experience, for example, backgrounds in law, finance, and so forth. Do you have any advice to help them strike that balance? And, and there's actually a that creates a power differential as well sometimes. And that was really tricky because when I talked about lived experience, there's no more lived experience than people who are currently part of that constituency. It, it, organizations, some bylaws are going to require you to do that. I don't love the idea. That's just my take on it. I love, I, I prefer the idea and we've done this. And part of that, it's easy in a youth organization because you have to be 18 to be on the board. So we can't actually have a youth member who's currently part of a club, but we have lots of former youth who are members of our clubs who are on the board, because we think that's really important to hear their voice. And they may be quite recently former youth members, but we've gone out of our way to cultivate a stream of those who eventually might serve on the board. So they might serve on an advisory board. We actually have a national advisory, youth advisory committee, and it meets from time to time with the board, but it doesn't have a governance role. And eventually some of those, after they move on from being direct service recipients, they become members of the board. And I think if there's a way to build towards that or to build that in, I actually think you have a better dynamic because then you start to get rid of some of those issues of inequity. You don't build onto someone who often doesn't have um, the same capacity to be at a board level. So you can have the tough conversations at the board and you also remove conflict of interest. It's very hard not to represent your own interest of the board when you're the direct service recipient. I, I know that many will say, but that's the mission. We need to have that. I think you actually set yourself up for some difficult and maybe disingenuous conversations as a result. You definitely want the people who've been there and done that and been had that experience. You also want ways for your board to understand the mission and to engage with people who might be the tenants or in other ways living your mission. But I think putting them directly on your board, I think we sometimes go too far in trying to be equitable and, and accessible. There's many ways to do it. So it's not, I don't think the best practice. I understand why many do it, but I wouldn't recommend it if you don't need to do it. A very quick question. What are your thoughts about the Imagine Canada Standards Program and how the standards, even if the group are not interested in accreditation, might support education and learning of board members? Is this a resource people should take a look at? That's a really great question about Imagine Canada Standards because I actually thought about that while writing this or, or preparing the notes for it about, and I was thinking about pointing to the governance section especially, but it's not just the governance section. If you're a board who aspires to Imagine Canada accreditation, you're going to be looking at five different key areas from finance to governance to human resources that the board has to sign off on. And it's a great model to understand your roles as a board in terms of what you should oversee. It doesn't go too deep into operations. It keeps it at a high level of the things that you want to be coming across the board's plate, across the board table to be just talking about. So you're touching on a bit of everything. So it's a really useful template to dive into. Even if you're not thinking about full-on Imagine Canada accreditation, I would definitely suggest taking a look at them all because you can download the accreditation handbook for free and look at the five areas that they that are required and what's required to report to your board because the board doesn't need to sign off on it all. And think about, are you a, would you be able to, as an organization, meet the requirements of those standards? Obviously, if you're already accredited, you need to do that and you should be putting in place a process. But it's a fantastic model for thinking about building that board agenda. 
including things like saying, okay, well, you know, every three years, the fundraising policy in terms of say gift acceptance and other things has to come to the board table. That keeps the board out of the day-to-day policy and operations of it, but it means that it comes to the table from time to time, just as the accreditation standards would require. So it gives you a cycle and it gives you a level of, of what should be at the board table without getting into too much detail. Great. Good answer. I'm going to combine two questions here, and it, 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 I think you've touched on some of it, and there's also some resources out there for this. One person says, how do we help support the board in embedding core principles such as equity into their roles? And then another side to this is, if you could create a new training program for racialized leaders to prepare them and assist them to get board positions, what would you be sure to include? This we've struggled with. Boards are looking for their own agenda around diversity, uh, in our case, diversity, equity, inclusion. We've done a lot of work with our staff on training. And we've now said, why are we just doing it with staff? Let's take our board through this training as well. And I think that's, that's sort of level one engagement. Um, and I think it has to become, a lot of us are just figuring this out. I think we're doing this in some ways with a new lens over the last year or 18 months. And we're starting to find our feet on it. But in our case, our human resources committee has said, let's take the lead on figuring out what a diversity and equity um, program looks like at the board level. And so engaging, we engage in external consultants. I'd realize not everyone can afford to do that, but it's been very helpful to say, okay, this is the staff program. What can you do with the board where you're not going to be able to take them aside for the same amount of time and in an in-depth way, but gives them the understanding of the issues that they should be considering as a board. And I think that's been helpful. Beyond that, the training you look at for staff, and sometimes it's not consulting, sometimes it's courses, sometimes it's training. And we've shared, for instance, resources on reconciliation not just with our staff that we want our staff to take, but said to the board members, you know, you could do this too. And we've again had a board member who really took the lead when we suggested this and is championing this. So taking, for instance, the course of the University of Alberta, um, where we're saying these are, these are good examples and we're encouraging you to do this. And at some points we're going to build it into the agenda. We're going to set aside time on the agenda, have conversations around this or bring up an issue or talk about these issues as they're seen from, for instance, a service recipient in one of our clubs. So you get that direct understanding. I don't have more, unfortunately, to offer for that because I think it's a big evolving area and it's something boards need to work on in a pretty significant way. And it goes to that second part of the question, which is, I actually think this isn't just about talking about diversity. We all do a terrible job of bringing up the next generation. And the challenge we've thrown out to our clubs is that they need to, re- the, the CEOs need to replace themselves with people who don't look like themselves. That means fostering young leaders. And that means that part of fostering young leaders, if you're in a CEO role, exposing them to the board. And I would encourage you to think about bringing others in your organization to board meetings and giving them exposure to boards because the board is a mystery and it is probably the last massive bastion of white privilege and the walls need to be broken down. And the way to do that is to bring people into those rooms to break the myth and to engage, to ha- build their skills and their experience being in a boardroom and understanding the types of conversations and questions that happen there and how to present in a way that holds others accountable, to be quite honest. So I think we have a duty to work on that. I think sometimes people say, well, you know, we hear this all the time, but I actually think we need to double down on bringing others into the boardroom. So that's one of the ways. And I think the other way is programs where we're giving people those skills and those tools or finding ways, knowing that we need to invest. We can't just put people in the seat. We need to say, look, I think we've got an opportunity for you. And we have this opportunity to take a course or to understand a bit more about governance by attending a session or, or something else that's outside of 
I realize that adds more time and that's not always fair, but I think we need to think about how we help them on that journey versus throwing people into the boardroom. There were a few questions around your differentiation between generative and strategic role of the board. I wonder if you can give a a sharp example of what generative role would look like and how that's different from strategy or how it might play into strategy. Well, it's interesting. So I think strategy is the broad direction for the organization, right? It's how you're going to not just play the game, but win the game. And that means revenue and it means growth or whatever it might be, how you are going to serve your mission the best given the circumstances for the next three to five years. That strategy, and I think that the board needs to guide on a strategy that management delivers. So it's management's job to write that strategy and say, this is what I think it's got to be. We've got to get more funding here. We've got to diversify, whatever that is. And the board needs to be your sounding board where that conversation gets tested. Generative issues are the ones like we just talked about. It's saying, let's bring in someone to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's talk about someone who's been impacted and has seen the the barriers that get created systemically in society. Let's have them present to the board. So the board dives very deep into this issue and it becomes a lens. So generative pieces are a lens to add color to some of that strategy, because then you come back later, maybe the next board meeting and say, so the, given the strategy where we're going, what do we need to do a little bit differently or tweak given the conversation we just had? So you get deep into some issues or you have a deep issue about how a community is faring and why they're not doing well, or an issue of, of someone who talks about the impact of COVID on children who haven't had access to technology devices through virtual education. Those are generative issues. They're deep dives on issues where you go, wow, that was eye-opening and, and they were difficult. They were interesting. And people got to ask tough questions and really engage in a conversation. But it's only one teeny piece of the broad strategy. So it can be added onto the strategy or it might amend the strategy, but it's not the strategy as a whole. So you take an issue that you wrestle with and you add it into a, a significant conversation at the board level. Thank you so much. So much to think about. Great resources to take a look at and follow up with and lots of great examples. So thank you so very much. Thank you for listening to Five Good Ideas with Owen Charters. We link to the five good ideas, resources, and a full transcript of the session in our show notes. You can find all of our Five Good Ideas sessions from past seasons on the Matri website at matri.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. And you can subscribe to the Five Good Ideas podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time.